Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com.au slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com.au slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com.au. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com.au. In this episode, we spoke with David Hall. David is the co-founder of Tapas and former principal architect across numerous financial institutions, including Westpac, Macquarie Bank, and Citigroup. David made his way into the industry with a unique opportunity at Salomon Brothers, an organization that had a lasting impact on David and his career. 20 years later, and many runs on the board with the institutions as a financial systems architect, David now runs his own business, Tapas. Tapas is an analytics platform that accelerates profit from insights for financial market enterprises, primarily through allowing them to analyze their risk. The platform provides analytical power to growing companies that was only really available to the premier financial institutions that David used to work for. David has a fascinating background and life experience as an expat. We covered a vast array of topics, including what he misses about America and loves about Australia, his father and lessons learned from him, experience traveling as an expat, particularly in Japan, financial innovation organizations like Solomon Brothers, Tapas and its work with retail brokers, and then principles for applying risk and technology in this business. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe on your podcast app and consider sharing this one with a friend that you think may enjoy it. But with that all being said, let's get into the episode with David Hall. Dave, thank you for joining me on your Friday. It's uh, I've heard it's a nice cold day up in Sydney and surprisingly a very warm one down here in Melbourne. Um, first question I've got to ask for you, and I think we we're chatting about this beforehand. What do you miss the most about the States? That's an interesting question because actually what I find is when I go back to the States, it's what I miss about Australia the most that affects me the most. And that is that, uh, I just love coffee. And uh, when you go back to the States, you kind of suffer with things like Starbucks. And uh, so anyway, I always <laughs> go hunting for a proper cafe if I could find one. Interesting. Where, whereabouts did you grow up in America? I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., so oh, wow, just okay. outside the nation's capital. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, an I, amazing place. Yeah, because when I send through the notes, like I, I really like to understand like lessons that 
we're sort of imparted onto people so we get a real idea as to who they are. And typically it's from their parents and it may be something that's direct or indirect. And I, no- I noted that you note your dad worked for the US government for both senators and congressmen. I'm curious as to what particular lesson he imparted on you when you were young. Yeah, as I said, the, um, he worked for senators and congressmen. And the amazing thing about politicians is how they get to know people. They remember you, they remember your name and things like that. And my dad, even though he worked with some really important people, he always made sure that he would spend time with um, just the average guy, you know, the cashier at the local shop and just ask him, you know, how is their day? What's their name? Get to know a bit about him and make him feel like somebody actually cared. And so I guess the lesson I take away from that is that even though we have really busy lives, we need to always take time, you know, to get to know each other and, and help people out. What was his job out of interest? Um, a couple of jobs, but they would be either the legislative assistant or the administrative assistant. Um, back in the day, I remember he would come home from work in the evening with a briefcase full of letters from the constituents. And like he was the guy, if you wrote to your congressman with a need or a complaint or something, my dad was the guy who would read it and then basically determine how the congressman should respond or dictate basically the responses. Interesting. And so you never thought, because I noted here that, you know, when you think about what you, what did you want to be as a kid? you loved rock and roll and I guess you thought you'd grow up like, like most kids to be a, a rock star. Why, <laughs> why not? But with that influence of your dad and, and the work that he did in that field, why not politics? Um, well, one of the memories I have a childhood is that say every four years because of the election cycle in the U S on uh, you know, the, the night before the first Tuesday in November, the entire office staff would be over at our house wondering whether they were going to have a job the next morning or not. Oh, God. And I kind of thought, I, I don't want to work in an industry where you <laughs> basically could possibly get pitched out like once every four years or something. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine it's it's pretty turbulent um, in that regard because if you're out, <laughs> you know, if you're out, you're out. Um, <laughs> what's, the, what's the earliest memory of your childhood. I noted you spoke about playing with your dog and walking in the woods. What what were the woods that you were thinking about in particular? Well, actually, in the suburbs where we lived, there was a kind of a national park. It's a creek that flows into Washington, D.C. It could actually ride your bicycle from um, out in the forest all the way into the city. Uh, it really? followed along the, yeah. Yeah, it's quite amazing, quite beautiful. Um, What's it called? Um, Rock Creek like a, Park. Rock Creek Park, okay. And that, that's the name of the national park as well? Yes. Yeah, so oh. Rock Creek is the creek. And some places it was narrower than others. But um, at certain points, actually, it even had the national zoo uh, in, in part of it. So it's quite amazing. Interesting. Now, thinking about your early career, and obviously we spoke about that political element before, so I noted here that you studied at the University of Maryland 
so you studied business accounting. I, I did accounting, banking, and finance. I'm curious as to how does accounting differ much to business accounting, or is it sort of the same thing? The the primary focus of the accounting degree was ultimately to become become a CPA or a certified public accountant, where you could uh, work at a big firm and you know audit large Fortune 500 companies and that sort of thing. It hmm. it did have a bit of uh, technology involved because you know, back in that day, it was when people were first starting to think about using computers for accounting. So it's it a little while back. Yeah. And so you obviously graduated. I think you entered the commercial world at PwC and went on to Solomon Brothers. I know that in your notes you spoke about how much the world of business was changing and how technology was becoming such an important element here, um, particularly probably at your time at Solomon. I, th- I noted you spoke really highly of Solomon. But I- I'm curious, how did you sort of fall into the world of finance tech in particular? Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, fall is probably a good point. You know, working at PwC in advisory business, you know, you are measured on how heavily utilized you are. And so yeah. as soon as you saw yourself finishing a project, you would want to be kind of shopping around for your next one if you were wise. I mean, you could wait to have somebody come and pick you for their project, whatever, uh, some random event, or you could hunt around. And so my specialty at the time was implementing these very large mainframe general ledgers. So we would um, work for companies such as, you know, Freddie Mac, which is probably infamous now mm. because of the GFC. But, you know, I worked on implementing a general ledger there. Imagine trying to come up with, you know, the account numbering scheme for the one of the biggest financial institutions in the United States. <laughs> and account numbers matter because if you if you make a mess of them, it's going to be quite impossible to produce meaningful reports and things. So anyway, when that project was finishing, I spoke to a friend who was in New York, and I just asked him if there was anything you know that was required my skills that he knew about. And the day after that, I got a call from his boss asking me if I wanted to move to Tokyo, Japan. And uh, interestingly, you know, I was engaged at the time. Uh, We were going to get married within a couple of months. And basically, two weeks after the wedding, uh, we packed up everything and flew to Tokyo. And um, we actually... What what year was this? This was uh, 1991. Wow. And that was actually the last time I actually lived in the United States. So... I flew away for a one-year project, and um, basically, Destiny has taken me a lot of different places since then. The um, Sol- I, I, yeah, Solomon Brothers was the customer. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I noticed um, you seemed at PwC to be working on a lot of, like you said, general ledgers, um, simulations for banks is sort of what I assumed it was. Um it's very curious that you went to Japan then. It would have, must have been quite exciting. I mean, how long did you live there? Uh, I lived in Japan for eight years. and um, Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. It was an amazing experience. I mean, it just, uh, after being there for the one-year project and having, you know, gone through the experience of kind of adjusting to their culture and um, learning the language and uh, learning to survive, 
it seemed a bit silly to just turn around and go straight back home. So um, the other thing, though, is that Solomon Brothers is an amazing company. And uh, the environment you come into when you arrive there, you know, back in the day, imagine not everybody even had PCs on every desk. And in Solomon's, we had these things called Sun Microsystems. They were kind of like supercomputers on everybody's desk because yeah. you know, these guys knew the value of technology in finance. And um, yeah, so when an opportunity came to then start working on a subsequent project, which was you know far more um, interesting and, and uh, finance focused than a general ledger, um, I raised my hand and they hired me to stay there. Yeah, I, I, I noted here you were very impressed with the way that Solomon Brothers ran itself. I'm curious as to what you think created sort of that innovative environment. Why do you think they were more ahead than, say, a JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs at the time? You might get into some serious arguments as to who was ahead. <laughs> but, um, um, gosh, I think, well, these are organizations that truly understood risk. They understood that um, certainly without, there's no way to make substantial gains without taking on some amount of risk, but there's also no way to retain those gains without managing that risk. So they, that's what they've done for you know over 100 years. Um, and when technology came along, I think they just realized that was also going to be part of the game. Yeah. Now, I noted here when you said before you you basically moved from America and you haven't been back since. Obviously, now you live in Australia, in Sydney. Um, I think on your notes, you spoke about how while your wife and you were living in uh, Japan, uh, she actually had the opportunity to go do some work in Australia. You came to visit. You fell in love with Australia and, you know, happily ever after, you still live here now. Why, like what particularly about Australia do you love? Like why, why did you not want to go back to either of Japan or America? Well, there's an amazing culture here that is a confluence of kind of European and American and, you know, even Asian and Middle Eastern. It's just, um, you know, in America and in, in in New York, especially, they think of themselves as the melting pot, and and I guess they are. But I think you know Australia is a, sort of that melting pot into different flavor. But also, what I really like in Australia is it feels to me like your local cafe and your local shops and things are still um, run by proprietors who actually you know own the place and care. Um, it hasn't been completely mm. overrun by uh, franchises and strip malls and. Um, it still has that um, that sort of feeling to it, and I hope it stays. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I think there's certain elements of the Australian culture which make that sort of stuff very hard. I remember watching a mini doco recently about why Starbucks failed, and in Australia, that is, and it's it's always interesting because to me, it sort of just goes back to that egalitarian culture where people don't like the big end of town. They they much prefer smaller players or people that they can relate to. I don't know why that is. I think it's sort of that, that myth of the fair go that we, 
exhibit here in Australia. It's interesting you said though about um, that melting pot. I think on my other podcast, I was interviewing a guest who's a demographer and he was speaking about how everyone claims they're the most you know, culturally diverse place in the world, particularly places like New York, London, et cetera. But I think Melbourne and Sydney well and truly have everyone else uh, sorted. I think New York has 16% of their population is born overseas, whereas in Melbourne and Sydney, it's it's getting about 50% now. So um, it just sort of shows and, and sort of the diverse array of people as well. Um, I think if you look at an index of the um, the different nationalities, I think Australia smashes everyone else out of the park as well, which is, is interesting more than anything. Um, you know, I, I've seen all sorts of different cultures where, and you would have seen as well, I love Japan. I've been to Japan twice in the last 18 months and I think um, me and my partner were actually planning on getting <laughs> married over really? there. Yeah, so because we wanted to get married overseas and, and – um, I don't know why we just love Japan. It's it's away from Australia, and <laughs> and yeah, but but their culture is very um, homogenous, and it, you know it's different, very very different. And so every one of those cultures has its own benefit, yeah. I think. Um, now jumping into to your career and the space that you're in now, you have worked extensively, I think, across the technical side of financial systems. I'm not going to list all the roles, but in an essence, you've worked front and back of house across companies like Macquarie Group, Westpac, Citigroup, Solomon Brothers as well, and then, of course, in Australia, America, and Japan. Now, the audience listening may have an idea as to what you actually do, but for the novices first listening to the space of fintech systems and what they actually are and how they run, I'm curious as to whether you can give us like a quick two-minute brief onto what you actually do and what these systems are. <laughs> That's, um, yeah, what I actually do is a well-kept secret, people used to say. <laughs> but much of that time, my role was architect. You know, I, I, I worked in the beginning, I, I guess I could go spin a little bit back to the PwC days. Um, you know, I came into this industry with a business background, but also a smattering of technology and computing. And what I found was um, these organizations were hiring people who had computer science degrees who really understood technology, did not necessarily understand business. And so in my role has always been really getting to understand and, and empathize and listen and learn about what it is that these business people need, but also at the same time, truly understand what are the capabilities and the constraints of technology of the day. And also budgetary constraints, policy constraints, security, um, disaster recovery. I mean, you you think about um, there's many, many dimensions to making sure that a system is going to be fit for purpose and also deliver the desired final outcome that somebody's asking for. And I guess... Um, mm. If you're really, you know, thinking about it, there's so many aspects to finance. You know, you could be looking at trying to improve somebody's experience. Uh, one of the projects I worked on at Citigroup, the um, what they were trying to do was effectively provide somebody a 
credit approval for a mortgage loan within 60 seconds of them you know, pushing <laughs> go. You know, so imagine this, you have filled out and completed a mortgage loan application that includes things like your employment history, your um, bank account details, and, you know, valuation from an appraiser of your house and lots of different things. But once you'd actually put all this stuff together and sort of push go and uploaded it to come back to you with, um, you know, an answer in 60 seconds. So, you know, that's, um, that's an aspect of the business where you're trying to think, how could we, you know, change, how could we win new business and change, you know, people's experience of dealing with the bank? from something like waiting weeks and weeks, you know, you're trying to buy a house. This is your, you're saying you're about to get married. You know, the next thing you're going to want to do is buy a house and it's a big dream. And if you, um, you know, you find your dream house and then you've got to sit there and wait for weeks for your bank to come back and tell you whether you're going to get the money or not. Uh, it's not good. So yeah, <laughs> banks aren't all bad. <laughs> There's, and uh, a lot of the things we do in technology is to try and just, you know, improve people's experience with them. Yeah. Uh, it, it was interesting on some of the notes you mentioned about, I, I was thinking about how our audience can learn, you know, there's obviously um, exchanges and brokers that are listening, but also traders. And one of the interesting notes you had here when I asked what can traders learn from them and how the house approaches risk was just how they view risk. I mean, one of the things, and obviously it's sort of tied into the work you do, is big houses know that you cannot manage risk if you cannot measure it. And that sort of goes, it reminds me of, um, is it Peter Drucker? Mm. <laughs> um, what gets uh, measured gets managed. Yep. Uh, I, I love that quote. Um, I found that really, really interesting as well. And, and it, yeah, it's just... Uh, one of those things that people can learn from this space is that, yes, technology, uh, you may be cautious of it or, I don't know, you may have an opinion on it, but the reality is it allows you to do things that in the past were not really possible. Yeah. Um, and that sort of draws me to the lessons learned in your own career. And I'm specifically thinking about your career as a technical ar architect. What stands out to you as the biggest insight from your time in the industry? I guess, as, again, as an architect, you've got to try and balance all these various constraints. You know, there's there's some desired outcome, but there's also constraints and, and, and technology problems and things you've got to overcome. But I guess mm. the main thing is that a couple of things. One is that there's a lot of people involved, There's and, and each of them has a different perspective and also a different interest. So... There may be the, the business leader who's trying to come up with a new product and get it to market as fast as he can and as cheap as he can. But then there's also the risk manager who's concerned about, like, if this product takes off, what's the impact going to be on our balance sheet? And then there's the um, security officers who want to be sure that we're not creating a new opportunity for, for some sort of threat for somebody to uh, break into our systems. And all these things have to be balanced. So, you know, one of the things I learned when I was living in Japan was a technique that they call nemawashi. And this yeah. is basically the art of establishing consensus among a diverse group of people uh, while always letting them save face, right? So 
in Japan, you would never have a big business meeting where you then throw some big controversial sort of issue that could potentially embarrass, you know, one of the executives around the table, uh, put them in a tough spot. So you always made sure that if there was something, a big decision had to be made or uh, compromise or any of this, that you go and visit each one of them individually, privately. And in Japan, usually there's a lot of alcohol involved in these type of meetings. Yeah. You want to make sure that they are on your side before you get into the, the big meeting. Interesting. Yeah, so it's not really a super technical insight, let's say. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is certainly important to try to get success in technology uh, endeavors and projects. Yeah, well, it sounds like in particular, it's it's the ability to communicate with an audience and, and make sure that everyone's on board. Because at the end of the day, you've got to convince a whole bunch of people that this is the right thing to do. I found it so funny reading that and, and thinking about, yeah, the amount of drinking that would have to be involved before that big meeting, which is so typical of Japanese culture. But then again, you also learn the the techniques of learn, you know lean and agile where in the West we <laughs> write on a bunch of post-it notes, whack it on a board, and all of a sudden we're doing a scrum. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to, to see how those little things are imparted on us along the way. I mean, uh, that's um, our, our current... Um our sort of strategy, you know, the strategy required to get something done in a large enterprise might not be the same strategy as, you know, launching a, uh, launching a startup and coming up with an idea. Um, you know, we could, we did spend a fair bit of time, uh, whiteboarding and forecasting and that sort of thing, but really nothing really happens until you start building a solution and getting it in people's hands. So the idea of kind of, the lean startup is, you know, to as rapidly as possible find ways that you can take this hypothesis that you have that we have uh, a solution, we understand a problem, we found a solution to it. Um, we're going to actually get this solution in people's hands and get feedback on it and potentially pivot if it, you know, if it fails, turn and then rapidly uh, learn and come back and iterate. So this is basically a philosophy we follow at Tapas with our company. Yeah. Now, on Tapas, I think uh, on the website, it's noted as an uh, analytics platform as a service. Uh, so primarily, you guys are focused on real-time insights for clients, building platforms or offering a platform that people can use to plug in all their different feeds and basically manage their exposures. And I know that you're primarily at the moment focused on FX retail brokers and uh, we were having a chat before. It was kind of kind of a funny one. Um, I'm, I was curious as to why that space in particular. <laughs> well, I guess the idea of coming up with something like a platform as a service is really a cloud concept. So we saw when we were starting the company that, I mean, we knew from our, our, our experience working in institutional banks in their algo trading space that, you know, the power of big data analytics and the power of taking tons of historical data and applying mathematical models and quant models and doing what we call back testing, hypothesizing, back testing, proving out these things, and then finally releasing that algorithm into the real world to start trading or something like that. And we knew, of course, to do this required tremendous compute resources, a team of really brilliant people. And lots of money and you know banks like Citibank, Macquarie Bank, we had that. But we thought 
that um, you know Tom and I thought when we started the company, surely there's a need in the marketplace where there are organizations out there who could benefit from this same kind of capability, but could never pull together the millions of dollars required to front up the team and buy the computers and all that. So what we thought would be the solution was to be able to, we'd build something, we'd offer it as a service, you know, cloud hosted subscription monthly model, you know, and then companies that were medium sized companies would be able to apply this to their business problems. And, at the same time, uh, I was working in FX at Westpac, and we actually, Tom, got to do some consulting at uh, a company called AxiTrader. It was mainly more IT strategy type of activity and was just noticing like, gee, these retail brokers, um, they're processing tons of data, you know, like huge volumes, you know, lots of ticks, lots of trades. And um, with... Uh, let's just say relatively less technology capability than we would have in a big bank like Westpac or City, and that's where the light bulb came on and said, "Gee, this must be this could be an opportunity where you know if we built um, a system that does kind of the analytics, the streaming data, and uh, risk management, that there'd be an opportunity, and definitely seems to be." Yeah, well, I mean, we were chatting about it before the industry was, and I think you got this really funny video on your website where people speak about how a lot of the industry was just using spreadsheets uh, for so many years, and uh, still, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, still, still, but like, I mean, I think about my time in the industry five years ago, and um, yeah, that was sort of best practice. You uh, pull a feed whack it on a spreadsheet, married it up with, um, you know, a few different sums of, of different orders and then all of a sudden you're balancing your book, which was mm. hilarious. But the fact that you couldn't do it in real time was um, quite scary. Yeah, you know? I, mean, I, um, I must say I came out of my first sort of sales meeting with uh, an FX broker almost stunned at the revelation that um, they were, you know, using Excel sheets and this copy-paste method to effectively try and get a picture of their risk and exposure when I knew this risk and exposure is changing like every second. What was that first sales meeting like? Like, Did it sort of awake on them as to how big a deal this was or how, how useful this tool could be? Honestly, what I found to be the strongest sales tool is the experience of a catastrophic event at a broker. <laughs> it's not fine. I should, sorry for laughing. It's really not funny. It's, and it's kind of like, um, I imagine the life of an insurance salesman is probably the same. And away you're coming out and saying, look, pay me these premiums. And people are like, gee, you know, I could use that money for something else until they experience that catastrophic event. And then they say, oh, I really wish I'd, you know, thought about that insurance policy, or I wish I'd thought about that risk management system that could have notified me of you know this this ballooning issue. And and actually in that first meeting, they had already had the catastrophic event because the reason that they were reaching out uh, to us looking for a solution in that you know they had lost I would say the equivalent of uh, ten years of our fee in one day. So I, I think. Um, 
yeah, anyway, I, I think that's... <laughs> Ten years. Yeah, and interestingly, you know, it's sort of like driving your car. Not everybody has had a catastrophic car accident, right? But we all know that could happen, so... Yeah. Now, we, we've got to jump into some short, sharp questions, but one of the things I wanted to know, and I think this is important, is understanding... I guess from an 80-20 perspective, you know, what are the what's the 20% of things that truly matter? And I spoke in our notes about ignoring specific languages, fads, whatever. What what are your general principles for applying a solution to a finance business? Like what were the things that seemed most crucial to you? In in our current space, I mean, there's a there's quite a long list, but I'd say speed and accuracy. And why that is, is that, you know, whether it is a dealer looking at a risk management system or whether it's an algorithm that's kind of making decisions, the data that they're using to make these decisions has to be accurate. Otherwise, clearly the decision is going to be wrong and there's a chance for catastrophic loss. The other thing is, you know, accurate isn't good enough because data changes, reality changes rapidly over time. And so timely is also incredibly key. And so where we invest a tremendous amount of time, whether it's, you know, programming in Python or some very specialized language we use for time series data analytics, language is called Q, we spend a tremendous amount of time on the um, accuracy of data, making sure that all of our data feeds have automatic recovery so that uh, an integrity checking. And then the first thing we do with data that it comes in is real-time reconciliation. So before we would modify the position that we we're displaying on our screen, we typically would match the trade from two different sources. So for example, you get a feed from the MetaTrader servers and you get a feed from liquidity provider and from a bridge and you make sure that they all agree before you even display that data. And you need to do this in less than a second. And even though yeah. you're getting a thousand updates per second, potentially. Um, and the other part, I guess, is we just don't ignore edge cases. And what edge cases are, you know, in, in the technology world, we talk about one thing we talk about is the happy path. And that is, when somebody sits down and explains to you how a certain process should work, you know, they're saying, this is how I want the system. This is the process I want the system to uh, be able to handle. That's kind of the happy path. That's what is expected. But oftentimes what happens is people do things that are totally unexpected. We call these edge cases because they're kind of out there on the edge. The problem with edge cases is they tend to happen, especially in the FX world where the systems run 24 hours a day, they always tend to happen at three o'clock in the morning, you know, that's some, <laughs> and, you know, our philosophy is we have this philosophy that says, don't call me at the beach. And the point is basically, I want to be sure that I've designed my software in such a way that if one of these edge cases happens or if a ne network link fails for a little while or a system goes down or reboots and comes back up, that the system is just going to, come back up on its own, the connections are going to reestablish and the data start feeding and the thing recovers on its own. And that way, you know, don't get woken up at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, 
that sort of stuff is always really important. I can think of numerous examples <laughs> uh, where that's where that's happened, and uh, yeah, even even for the the pro traders or retail traders that are listening, I think thinking about ridiculous examples and managing for that risk is is so important. And uh, you know, you never know, you never know when you get that call at three a.m. and uh, you're thinking, what the hell is going on? Um, we're going to jump into these short, fast questions. So the first one I have for you is, what is your morning and evening routine? <laughs> well, the morning routine usually starts around 5.30 or 6 with, um, I've got a dog, a big dog, and she has okay. got incredible energy. And basically, we need she needs to be out into the field, you know, running running hard in the morning. I should be running hard as well. That'd be good. But <laughs> I didn't at least go for a walk. We walk a couple of kilometers and, um, okay. and you know, it's a great time where the mobile phone doesn't come cause it might be raining or something and I don't want to ruin the phone. So you just leave everything in the house and, and go out and it's basically clear mind time in the morning. Interesting. Mm. And for the evening, how do you sort of decompress at night? Um, just trying to remember if I do. (laughs) (laughs) Usually there's a break, you know, with our business, I've got people in Europe to talk to. So we're, it's interesting, you know, here in Australia, we do get the jump on the rest of the world because our morning, you know, we're the first ones in on Monday, but you know, in the evening, usually there's a break, have some dinner with the family. And then, you know, once it gets quiet, I'm sort of back to, potentially a couple of Skypes and things with people off uh, in the UK. Um, mm. And then eventually just collapse with exhaustion. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you had to gift a book to our audience, uh, what would it be? Um, I'm sort of a tech geek at heart. And I also like people. And I read a book ages ago called Peopleware. And uh, it's okay. a book. It, it's about it's about dealing with people who are software developers and programmers and what life is like in the, um, in the world of, of creative processes like software development. So it's, it's really quite interesting. Um, just in, you know, how to, how to treat people and how to give people enough space to, to do the work they need to do. And, um, yeah, it's, I'm going to have to check, check that one out. We'll have to link it for the audience as well. Uh, I had here, and this is probably the most interesting answer you gave back on these short, fast questions was, uh, what quote do you live by or think of often? I'm curious as to what your thoughts are there. Well, when I um, used to work for Macquarie Bank, at one of the, um, Alan Moss was the CEO there. And at our sort of new director's dinner, he said that nothing of real interest was ever achieved by just one person really telling us that, you know, you need to work together as teams, collaborate and put together something of people with diverse backgrounds and diverse skills if you really want to achieve something amazing. Mm. Yeah, so I always think about that whenever anything we're doing. I think, like, how do I get more people involved? Yeah, I did. I did really like that quote. That was a very good quote. Now, last request, um, I guess, for you: Where can people find Tapas through the internet and social media? Sure. Well, on Twitter, 
it's Tapas Labs at Tapas Labs, and our website is okay. Tapas. That's T A P A S dot com. Okay. Yeah, and I'd I'd suggest for for the brokers and if anyone's still uh, managing things via a spreadsheet, definitely go check out the website. Um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I, I think I've learned a lot. Very interesting to hear about your background, of course, and uh, thank you so much for giving up some time on your Friday to do yeah, this with us. My pleasure indeed. Thank you, Jordan. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.